Welcome to the Spacecraft Podcast, presented by Dan Moscrop and brought to you by them.co.uk, who provides specialist graphic design support for commercial architects, developers and interior designers. Uh, so welcome to podcast. I'm here with John Riddle from Theatre Project. I met John a few weeks ago, just before Christmas actually. Um, I just found him a really interesting guy. He's doing some really interesting things uh, in the theatre world. John, tell us a little bit about Theatre Project. The Theatre Project's the company that I work for. We, we've been going for about 60 years now. Uh, started off initially as a company, as a, a lighting hire and sound hire company working in the West End of London. The company then expanded including an element of theatre consultancy, which was a very new business at the time. This was in the early 70s. And theatre consultancy encompasses a number of different disciplines for us, everything from uh, arts and business, strategic stuff at the front end of a job. Yeah. You know, Why should I have a, a theatre building or a performing arts building? How can I make a, an arts and business case for this? Through to the tail end of the job, how do I operate it? How do I set up my staffing structure and, you know, perhaps health and safety reviews, that kind of thing. But the core of our work is a big chunk in the middle, which is around designing and building performing arts centres with architects and builders, and that's all around the world. Um, so the different elements of that are theatre design and planning. So theatre design is really designing auditoria, the seating layouts, the um, uh, the sight lines, uh, all that element of it which is very important uh, theatre planning is then arranging the number of rooms, the size of those rooms, uh, the circulation space and working with the architect to sort those out um, then there's theatre equipment so we have lighting, sound and rigging equipment which is all required to make most venues work, some of them huge some of them obviously much smaller in terms of uh, the requirements and sound and communication so you've got AV uh, you've got sound systems, you've got recording systems, li- assisted listening systems, paging systems and, and that kind of thing. And uh, another element we have then is acoustics, which uh, is something that we've added to the uh, to our offer in the last five or six years. So uh, acoustics has become a really growing uh, element of the work that we do. And that's partly to do with room acoustics, how things sound within the performance space, particularly important if it's a concert hall or a music mm. room. Also, the other more prosaic elements of that, like breakout and breakout, segregation of rooms from other spaces, and building services noise as to you know whether the mechanical ventilation is is too loud or not. So, in terms of, of how we work, yeah, sometimes we work with clients from a very early stage, uh, so even before they have a site, before they've got their funding in place uh, to develop the business case for them. Sometimes we find ourselves kind of parachuted in later on in the project when a design team has found themselves building a building that they realise they don't fully understand. So our, our engagement can either be really embedded with the client or kind of a little bit of a nuisance bolted onto the side of that. But, you know, we have buildings, uh, a lot of buildings in the UK, a lot of work internationally. We have an office in uh, Connecticut and Denver, office in Shanghai, a lot of our work in the Far East and a lot in the Middle East at the moment as well. And do you find yourself working with the same architects around the world? Is, is, there, is there an area of specialism for theatres, I imagine? Yeah, there is. There are some, a uh, lot of architects that everybody's heard of. We've worked with Foster's, we've worked with Zaha. Mm. A lot of those big names that we're working with on a regular basis. Snoheta we've worked with several times and continue to do so. But also there's a, a number of smaller specialist theatre yeah. architects that uh, we work with uh, 
on a fairly regular basis, the likes of Foster Wilson, Tim Foster, architects uh, in, in London, and others who have kind of specialised in performing arts buildings and have a real kind of expertise, particularly on the, the, you know, the smaller scale of things. I think a lot of what we have to do with architects is education and with design teams in general. Even if you have an architect that the practice has experience in working in performing arts centres, the project architect and the team that you're working with very possibly may not. It might be their first experience. So a lot of the time we're spending talking through with people why certain things are important and the nuances of different types of space. 100-seat studio theatre is one thing, 2,000-seat concert hall or an opera house entirely different and the way they need to operate and the requirements aren't the same throughout. And obviously your background in, as, as a production manager and lighting designer will help. What, is, it, is it a massive change for you moving from the theatre into this world of educating architects? Yeah, it was a huge change. I've been with Theatre Projects for 11 years now and, I, and prior to that, yes, I was I spent 20 plus years as a sweaty theatre technician, lighting <laughs> designer, production manager, working in all of those different types of spaces from a little 100-seat studio theatre in Belfast where I really kind of started out, cut mm. my teeth through repertory theatres where we were producing work on a monthly basis and then in later years working for Scottish Opera in Glasgow who are a, sort of a, a good-sized opera company producing work for presentation uh, in Glasgow and also on tour. So uh, it was a big change coming into this world. If you're working in, in, in theatre, the performing arts, everybody has one goal which is to get something on that stage and to see it performed. In architecture and design, it's not necessarily like that. The main contractor, for example, tends to be quite interested in what the bottom line is and delivering something on programme and to a good price. Um, And sometimes it's hard to get them engaged with the fact that quality uh, is is a real problem. Programme and costs tend to come up in architecture all the time as the big risks. But for something like performing arts, quality is a big problem. It's a bigger risk if... The quality isn't there. In some cases, the building just doesn't function. And you've done quite a lot of research. Obviously, you've done academic research, and you've uh, it states that you've analysed over a hundred venues now. What what sort of patterns are you seeing? What are people doing wrong in those spaces that you can learn from? I think there's there's it's not necessary that people are doing things wrong. A lot of spaces. Uh, have been in existence for some time. So you might have spaces that have been around for maybe 100 years. Uh, A lot of the uh, West End theatres or the, 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 the big regional touring houses or perhaps Victorian or Edwardian, great things in those theatres in so many ways. But technically they're not kind of not meeting what's happening nowadays and they've had to be able to update themselves. Perhaps they're not certainly not compliant in terms of accessibility, mm. uh, may have some fire issues and those kind of things. So I think if, if there's anything that people are doing wrong, it's that they tend to take a piecemeal approach to refurbishment of venues as opposed to kind of sitting back and looking at the big picture and planning out what it is that they want to do with the building. I think the other thing is if somebody's building a new building and coming to it afresh, they sometimes have rather fixed notions of what it is they want to achieve. Mm. Um, I think we want to build a theatre to do this and our job as a consultant to go in is to say, well, why? What's it for? What do you want to do with this space? People often say they want flexible space so they can get rid of the seating and have a flat floor. Well, one of the first questions I would ask is why? Mm. What's the business case for this flat floor? Do you need it in order to establish your 
revenue streams because if you have that kind of situation in a performing arts venue in an auditorium it's probably going to be a weaker shape and form than something which has a designed mm. designed in yeah. seating so I mean it doesn't mean to say it's wrong but we have to be really sure that it's the right thing for that project a lot of the things I've seen recently in, in theatres and especially the new build ones um, but also things like Almeida um, where you've got some amazing technology going on behind the scenes it's quite incred- incredible watching rotating st- not just rotating stages, but the way that people were ejected out of the stage and things like that. It just means that there's so many huge mechanics that are responsible for things going on behind the scenes. It must be quite an interesting period to be working in at the moment, where everything's getting smaller. It is, absolutely. I think, you know, if you take the contrast between something like a West End theatre, where you might put a show in there that could run for many, many years. I mean, we recently worked on the refurbishment of the Victoria Palace Theatre, which is, is one of uh, Cameron Mackintosh's theatres, and that's where Hamilton uh, is playing now, and I would imagine it will play there for some time. The West End model means if you're going to bring a show in there, you can do what you like pretty much to that venue because you're assuming that that show is going to sit there for a long time. So if you've got to chop out a chunk of floor to put in some elevators, that's terrific. On the other hand, somewhere which is a, a presenting house, a receiving house where shows are coming in on a regular basis, it needs to be able to chop and change those things very quickly and be uh, responsive to the different requirements of the shows that are coming in. Mm-hmm. Generally, most shows that are out on tour tend to keep to a similar sort of format because they know those the spaces that they're going into, try and keep it simple for themselves. But yeah, the, the technology, development in technology has been huge mm. and you know continues to be particularly on the, the, the lighting and sound side. We've seen a big change in recent years towards LED technology in lighting, production lighting, away from what would have been the old form of tungsten halogen lights. lights. Yes, yeah. exactly. I always get the feeling when it comes to sort of theatres that you know the back end, the back offices and stuff become quite secondary or a, or a distant cousin. Because I imagine all the investment goes into the sort of front end stage area where the audience will be. Yeah, no, I think you're quite right. There tends to be a focus on the auditorium and the public spaces. The way people work in theatres is has always been different i think than it, mm. than it is in 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 lots of other venues most folk don't spend a lot of time in their offices if they have one and obviously senior management will have but you know they tend to bounce around a lot very present in different parts of the of the building so th- there are quite a number of of venues where the open plan office design has worked very well the young vic uh, down on the cut uh, south of of the river near waterloo is one where they have a lovely open plan officer which is very flexible it's been quite responsive to their changing needs as an organization because you've got you know different uh, increase in the education department or increase in marketing and, and, and things kind of changing and moving around from department to department. Technical staff, uh, of whom I would have been one for many years, spend a lot of their time in the auditorium, on mm-hmm. stage and perhaps in the control rooms as well. So the environment of something like a control room in a theatre is very interesting because if you're in production for a show, you could spend... 60 or 70 hours a week in that control room and that can be really quite a draining experience and even the the choice of colours in in those rooms is quite important. We use black a lot in theatre for very good reasons because uh, if you've got a lot of lighting about you don't want bounce where you don't want it, you want to be able to control that, that's fine on stage 
No reason to paint a control room black. Let's have it in something muted, mm. but any colour rather than black. And I often say the same thing for, for studio theatres. People often use the term black box theatre. And there's no reason why a black box needs to be black. You know, yeah. let's you know, let's yeah. look at maybe a series of tones of, of of aubergine or darker reds or rich things like that. Keep them tonally. Keep it down. Keep the reflections down. But let's not kill everybody with with this sort of overpowering black when they go in there. If you need black in the production uh, when you go into the show, that's fine. We can do that. But you don't need it in your everyday life when you're spending time in there rigging for six or seven hours. Is it quite a stressful job then, working in theatres? I mean, reading in your auditory book, and I know this is for different reasons, but yeah, you said many many good managers face burnout. Obviously, it's quite stressful the cycle of things that are going through. It is stressful. Uh, you know, I think one of the big changes for me coming to work in uh, theatre projects and working on the design and delivery of buildings is the time it takes to do that. So I might work on a project that takes seven years. To, well, yeah. to actually deliver, as was the case with, with uh, Milton Court at Guildhall School of Music and Drama. If you're doing a show, in, in the, the, the subsidised repertory part of my previous life, uh, we'd perhaps have a model box on a Monday morning at the start of a rehearsal period. Four weeks later, maybe even three and a half weeks later, we would be into production and perhaps into preview mm. of that show. So that's a really compressed yeah, period of time. Yeah. Another three weeks later, the whole thing would be... Um, it would be closed. So that is quite stressful because you know that you're going to have an audience in that theatre at 7.30 on that Tuesday evening, whether you like it or not. Mm. Your programme is not going to slip. You know, there's not a kind of, oh, let's add two weeks to uh, to the programme here and, uh, and we'll be fine. That can't happen. So the stress of that does ramp up. And you do, you know, we do in theatre production and, uh, you know, associated jobs... Do a lot of hours, you know, sort of mm. 60, 70, 80 hour weeks are typical. It's not, that's not the unusual. It's quite, it's quite interesting when you think about it. Ironically, I'm sort of looking at uh, places like Fora, which is um, a co-working space, really nicely designed, and their main focus is on wellness so that people aren't stressed out. And I think you quite often get people have an opinion that, you know, theatre land's quite fluffy and everyone's got these really easy jobs, yet... You're talking quite a stressful environment to work in, long hours. It's almost like they're being overlooked, the staff that work there, about the wellness side of things. And I wonder if there's been any of that starting to seep over into the architectural uh, designs for theatres for the back end. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it's important uh, when we look at things like rehearsal rooms, where yeah. people can spend a lot of time, dressing rooms. Um, dressing rooms tend to be better placed than perhaps some of the other office spaces in some ways I mean, certainly if I have a technical office uh, or a stage manager's office it's probably going to go substage in a basement in a room with no windows and that's probably fair enough because they're not going to spend a huge amount of time mm. in there if I'm a performer on tour or even a company manager on tour and I'm in for a week or two weeks in this venue having a dressing room which is my home from home that has a view over the park has some windows has got a nice seated area is pleasant and comfortable the shower works and mm. all this kind of thing you know that that's a real comfort because you you know you don't have your own home place to go to you've got that you need to, to, to have this you need to make this somewhere that you're comfortable and if you're comfortable in that you know then there's a, a fighting chance of you going on stage and delivering the performance that the audience expects so so I think it, it happens there I think for for, for resident staff 
perhaps you're right, perhaps there's something there mm. that, that, that needs to be looked at a little bit more. And it's often one of those things, if we need to, to, to look at the area or look at the at value engineering, yeah, the way yeah. the building is working, those are the things that perhaps get sacrificed. I remember, um, it's probably about five or six years ago now, I used to do a lot of work with the Roundhouse mm. in Camden. And they've got quite famous offices now where the offices were built onto the side of the actual Roundhouse. But I remember when we worked with them at the time, uh, everyone was just so depressed of working in this sort of almost like a, a porter cabin next yeah. door for a long time before these huge new offices were. And apparently it transformed the emotions of everybody working there. Yeah, I have no doubt. I mean, the, the Roundhouse is one of was one of the venues that we worked on. Oh, OK, yeah. The studies, it's amazing space, that. isn't it? It is, it is an incredible space. I mean, it's it's not quite unique, but practically mm. unique in it. But despite its scale, there's something human about this uh, about the the way we interact with that. You're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I think that's. What do you think that is? Uh, well, I don't know. There's something. There's something about grand spaces like that. I think uh, I think it's unusual in performing arts space because it's so open and it is so expansive uh, for it to feel as intimate and comfortable it as it does. It feels quite cosy there, doesn't it? It does, it can do. I and mean, I've been to various um, events in there on different on different scales and different types. The room can change quite dramatically yeah. in that, but it always tends to feel... It, it doesn't feel sort of overpoweringly big. I mean, you've got a sense of... Yeah, of you should feel dwarfed in that environment, yet you don't. You should, and I think in terms of the auditorium design of many spaces that, that, that we look at, certainly if it's a proscenium arch end-on mm. theatre... The notion of being contained as a member of the audience, we generally mm. think, is is quite good. That that keeps the keeps the audience together. You have a sense of shared experience of those that you're there with. Uh, you feel safe because you don't have a sort of massive expanse overhead. Somewhere like the Olivia at the National Theatre, which is a large uh, open space, there is very high overhead, and I think a lot of the energy dissipates in there. I think it was Declan Donnellan who directed many shows in there said it takes the energy of plutonium just to get across to the front row in the Olivier and typically you know we like to keep that contained but the roundhouse does I mean there's always there's always spaces like that which are the exception I think for public spaces however having that kind of grand scale in foyers and those areas yeah. theatre, something yeah. which is really uh, is really important you know uh, we need a lot of space in public areas of theatres for people to congregate pre-show if I have a thousand people coming to see something I need ideally a thousand square metres of public space for them to gather in you know and to circulate freely and you know to have the space to have the light to have glazing and uh, sort of an open sense of things in there I think is quite important. You mentioned before that public spaces have a huge social benefit do you think people are getting that right now or is that something more recently that we're starting to appreciate? I think it's, we have begun to appreciate it more in the last, certainly 50 years, probably mm. the last 10 to 20 years, even more. I think if you look again at the West End theatres, most of those have got fairly tiny little public spaces and bars. You know, There's not enough room uh, generally to go and get a drink at the interval. Lucky if you can get to the loo, in fact, and back to your seat for Modern spaces, I mean, the likes of the National, I just talked about the problems I feel with yeah. the Olivier there, but the public spaces in the National, it's been involved hugely, that and the other buildings along the South Bank, in completely reinventing that strip mm. of the river mm. in, in London. And the public spaces are used, they have a life which is completely disconnected 
with what's happening on stage. People are in there during the day doing different things. People in with a laptop and working to the sense, the extent now that the the foyer of the Littleton uh, is kind of set up in a way that allows you to go in and and work. People have meetings in there. You know, you can plug in your your yeah. laptop. You can get onto the Wi-Fi. So they've kind of responded to the fact that this is the case, and that's not the primary purpose of that space when you think yeah, about it. But yet, it's something that it's it's delivering. The Barbican is another one that I really find fascinating. There's a, a kind of a through route through the Barbican that goes north south yeah. in the city, and people will use that uh, to get onto the high walks. And then they use the spaces around that, and you can go in there and see a mother and toddler's group uh, down in the lower lower foyer. As people grabbing coffee, having meetings, I mean, a real sense of life and energy around it. Weirdly, I was thinking of Barbican myself. I took my daughter there uh, to watch a, an opera. No, so it's the National Youth Orchestra. And sometimes I feel in the Barbican because of its scale in those public spaces, you almost feel a little bit naughty being there. You know, especially when you go down the steps towards the theatre entrances on the ground floor. There's some sort of sense of scale. You do feel like you're in a theatre and you're, it's not somewhere you'd want to congregate a little bit sometimes. Yeah, no, I think that's interesting. There's some, some newer spaces that that, um, that I like, sadly not necessarily uh, ones that, that we worked on, but the, there's a, a new art centre in Belfast, the MAC, Metropolitan Art oh, yeah, Centre, yeah. uh, which Hall McKnight Architects in the city designed and it has got... Uh, most fabulous uh, public spaces uh, that's really kind of reinvigorated the part of the city that it's Mm. in. It's adjacent to St Anne's Cathedral, an area called Cathedral Quarter, opens onto a plaza and has this vast... uh, Well, it's not vast in terms of area, Mm. but it's this kind of triangular shape of... Uh, sort of triple or quadruple height foyer in there which you know for me it always kind of reminds me the shape of the prow of a ship you know which is for Belfast a big shipbuilding city is quite irrelevant it's very relevant in terms of design but it's on the site of an old street Hector Street which was kind of demolished by the production of this um, of this art centre and what the architects have done is really to try and, and reinvent that street internally so there's a real connection between the exterior spaces into this space yeah. but the scale of that is huge uh, feels huge but everything inside is human scale so the details of, of you know the seating that you sit at they've got nice little rows of um, uh, benches with tables mm. facing each other and they're at a scale which if two of us were to sit together you're kind of squeezed up it's very comfortable for one it's a nice little intense intimate um, experience for two and uh, you know so you can do that I think it's those details human scale of the details that the architect uses Mm. in those spaces uh, you know can really change the way you engage with that as a member of the audience or or as somebody coming in and I think you know it's, it's interesting with those with these spaces to think about how our attitude towards them changes. They're, they adapt over time. Uh, yeah. I mean, what we might design a space to do is not necessarily how it's going to be used. And how we all interpret a space, how we experience a space is going to be mm. different. You know, mm. we, we, we don't have a, a, an homogenous experience of a space. It is going to be different uh, for all of us. And it will be different perhaps every time we go in. If I go into that space at 11 o'clock for a meeting or a cup of coffee and a chat with somebody... That's a different experience to going in at seven o'clock pre-show when the, yeah. the place is round. So the spaces are, you know, they they really do, um, they really do change character. You were just talking there about um, the National Theatre and how that sort of transformed the South Bank. 
there's a massive responsibility, isn't there, for architects and designers when they're building something of that scale mm. with public money that it needs to be something that is used constantly, doesn't it? Yeah, it is, absolutely. It's very important that it is. And it, I think increasingly these days we have to be able to demonstrate it's going to be, you know, planners are looking for this sense of the kind of continuity of use across the space, how it's going to be used in different ways. Planners are aware of social benefits and requirements of spaces, that they have got something else to offer other than just the kind of primary function of the space. Yeah. But, you know, the ability to the ability to revitalise an area or to open up an area, to give an area another sense of, of connection to somewhere else is something that theatres can do in a way that very few other buildings can do. Other public buildings perhaps can, but but there's not many places now where we're going to en masse at certain times, you know, it's going to expose itself to uh, large numbers of people. You know, it completely opens up an area. The Lowry at Salford Quays, um, which is another one of ours going back to the early 2000s, you know, the time of the great lottery boom in arts buildings. Salford Quays was desolate wasteland at the start of that process. The Lowry was really the first development on that site and that site now has got retail residential, it's got Media City there which is an incredible a lot of, of television and film has moved up to that area. There's museums with uh, Imperial War Museum North, there's Coronation Street and everything. So it's completely changed. The catalyst for changing that entire area has come from the arts building and arts buildings can do that kind of thing in a way I think True many place making can. transformation absolutely yeah. you're currently studying a PhD in theatre design well yes I am um, yes it's for my sins I did a um, I did a master's in theatre consultancy uh, which I completed about eight years ago my master's dissertation was in churches and theatres so it was kind of looking at those many churches have become Theatres, you know, the churches that have gone out of use are now art centres yeah. or theatres. Equally, it's interesting now that that uh, with the growth of of many of the African churches, particularly here in London, you see that uh, uh, quite a lot of old theatre buildings or buildings that were perhaps once 1930s cinemas are now the home to some really vibrant churches. Um, so there's there's obvious um, you know, crossover between those two. And that led me then into getting involved in, in theatre, uh, in doing the PhD, which and my PhD is into theatre spaces in Northern Ireland, uh, which is where I'm from, uh, and particularly in Belfast. And it's kind of tracking through theatre spaces from the sort of inception of Northern Ireland, 1921-22, mm. uh, following that through. And I think... What that has has shown me, the stories that have come out from that are about people and space, and you know how uh, what drives people to find spaces for performance. In most cases, what's happened is somebody has, or a group of people, or a small theatre company has needed a place to perform and rehearse, so they find a found space, and then that company perhaps does rather well. They get lots of audiences, and they become established then they perhaps move to another space, maybe it's another fine space or refurb, eventually perhaps moving into a new venue. Mm. And this has happened several times. You kind of see this this running through. And what happens is, you know, this company becomes established in their new building. Another group comes along then who's looking for a space to perform in or things. So we don't work the way those guys did. We've got this new dynamic kind of way of devising work and we need a space to do that in. 
And there's been some fascinating stuff happening in, in that area in terms of found spaces and the use of spaces on the high street for performing arts. Northern Ireland was particularly badly hit by the sort of 2008 downturn, um, if you like. So there were a lot of spaces, a lot of empty shop fronts there. Mm. So shop fronts began to be used uh, for performance. Bank buildings are another one. There's quite a number of companies that have performed or taken over bank buildings to, to perform. And there's something I really love about that about the kind of political nature of that yeah, action, yeah, really, yeah. you know, political... Almost like Occupy. <laughs> it is, it's <laughs> kind of, it kind of has that sort of sense about it. So, um, you know, these buildings, these quite grand, often large-scale banking halls being used for performance or for rehearsal mm. or for uh, informal presentation of work. So, I mean, that kind of process is, is continuing, but I think, you know, the way that we're consuming culture as a society is changing a bit... The, the way we consume it in formal terms in theatre will always be there to some extent, but we're doing different things now. We're engaging hugely digitally. We still like live performance. We still like the shared experience of that, but I think we're much more interested as audiences in going into other spaces to have different types of experience in terms of performance. So, you know, building big performing arts centres and theatres still a relevant practice for us. But it's really interesting to be studying, you know, how mm. people like us as consultants can be can engage with things that can help these companies use smaller spaces or convert spaces, and uh, even if that's a, a sort of transitional or mm. transitory use. The thing with technology for me, which you're seeing a lot more of in in theatre, especially through the things in London International Festival of Theatre. When we do work in workspaces, there's often quite a request for um, for technology screens and so on. There's always a flip side of the technology going out of date quickly. Yeah. So you think you're buying into something that's going to give you the ability to evolve, but then you find yourself trapped into that format. Have you got any top tips on technology? <laughs> infrastructure. It's all about the infrastructure. Uh, and that's, that's really the key to, to the way we work in the, in the designing of the specialist equipment. Yeah. The structure and the infrastructure. If structurally I can get make sure the structural engineer and architect are giving me enough things in that I can hang stuff off in the right places with the right loading capacity and that's part of our job is to produce pure future proofing weight yeah, and exactly so uh, over specifying what you need and appropriately specifying what yeah, we okay. need so and against you know against benchmarks of of, of what we know these uh, of how we know things are, are, are working in, in the business and have worked so many things are still the same things are developing yeah um but you know there's there's two and a half thousand years of, of theater design and performance which has changed technology is one of the changing things in there but still people are doing sort of odd daft things so even what the Greeks were doing with um, sort of fairly interesting bits of stage machinery you know we're doing the same thing now it's better and it's uh, safer and it's more automated but you know it's not actually really anything new and infrastructure when it comes to lighting and sound you know again uh, getting in fibre getting in what is currently typically cat 6a wiring network wiring across the building in a way, I don't worry too much about what boxes we hang on either end of that. You know, mm, how that, if we we get that that cabling right, that is really helpful. And the other thing that we tend to do is to look at temporary cable routes because that's a, an important part of touring and broadcasting when it comes into theatres. So, getting those things 
incorporated into design so that when I go into the theatre, I'm not looking at a load of kind of looped cable that somebody's draped around the place because they've had to do that in order to get, uh, just to get that show on. And I think one of the things that pleased me most about the Victoria Palace when Hamilton opened in there was that uh, there's a a circle front lighting bar with lots of lights and um, monitors and all manner of kit on there. And there wasn't... A single additional piece of cable on there it was all part of it all came off the wired mm. infrastructure. I think that's great. Maybe in fifteen years' time, it won't be enough. But you know that's that's the best I think that we can do is to is to is to get the bandwidth as high as possible and get as much in there as we need to. What we are noticing, of course, is that what would have been increasingly large demands for electricity for power are backing off of it now because LEDs and things are getting a bit more efficient or it's changing, it's moving into different, uh, it's moving away from lighting and perhaps into the use of big LED screens and LED video walls sometimes which are with really dense pixels can be quite demanding. But yeah, if, if we get the infrastructure right and the structure, we don't need to worry about too much else. And if we take the length of some of these design processes for theatres, if I was to specify lighting for a venue on day one, well, you know, long before we've actually got to the opening of that venue, that's probably going to be obsolete. So, you know, we try and push back uh, specification of any actual equipment uh, as far back into the uh, process as possible. So maybe six months before completion, we're saying, right, right yeah. now what are we going to choose yeah. for the uh, for, for the, the, the actual lights and the uh, console that goes into that space? It's something I'm sure you're an expert on, or maybe you'd be too embarrassed to admit you are, um, is, the, is acoustics. You know, it's something that's blown my mind, especially uh, both in the office environment and even theatre where you know, I've, I've, I've been to shows where I've sat at the edge of my seat literally squinting my ears to hear. Or there's sometimes where I felt like my ears are, being, are about to implode because there's, everything's too loud. Uh, and and th- something that really surprised me, I think I only learned it three or four years ago, which is quite embarrassing for the sector I work in, but... In office space, they channel in white noise, so silence doesn't feel so weird. But when you're in an environment like that, there's, there's sometimes times where you just feel out of sh- out of out of kilter with the environment. And I could never put my finger on it, but I've put it down to acoustics. What what, you, what have you learned from a, from your years of acoustics? I'm not an acoustician by profession, no. so I have learned quite a lot with working with my colleagues who are acousticians, and it has been really interesting to learn the different things that matter, particularly in different performance spaces. Mm -hmm. Um, If we take a performance space which is designed for the spoken word, we're interested a lot in in intelligibility. And intelligibility comes from a variety of different things, including people in the auditorium directly hearing what I'm saying. So, you know, if I'm on stage and speaking, I don't want the energy of that to be lost completely. But another part of that is getting some reflections. Now, acousticians talk about early and late reflections yeah. in uh, in terms of um, how we experience sound. The early reflections tend to increase intelligibility. Late reflections, I think, are what give you space. So, so that be an echo? Yes, yeah. re- reverberation. So so from the point of view of music, that's that's very important. And re- those reflections also give you, you know, it's important in terms of Spatially, how you engage with the space and how uh, that the space feels, sounds like it feels, as if sounds like it's the same size as it feels. And, and that uh, is interesting. It yeah. is. And if you've yeah. been into any recording spaces uh, which w- might have a very low reverb time, pretty dead 
spaces because you're trying to control uh, the amount of uh, sound bouncing around, uh, they tend to feel a bit unnatural. And it's nice from the point of view of somebody who's in a performing art space for that to feel natural yeah. uh, in terms of how we experience it acoustically. Going into something like music spaces then, I mean, the high end of that, natural acoustics for concert halls. So then you're really into all sorts of interesting things in terms of acoustics and how the audience experience the sound of an orchestra. And that orchestra could be a chamber orchestra, could be a 120-piece playing Mahler or something like that. So there's a, there's a scale there which sometimes requires there to be variable acoustic devices within the room which allows you to perhaps add a little softness, add some, um, some drapes which takes some of the loudness out of that, not necessarily the reverb time but take some of the loudness out of the impact of that but the other thing in in that context is that the band the orchestra need to be able to hear themselves if you think about yourself sitting mm. as uh yeah, on, on on strings playing something um you you're not necessarily aware of what somebody's playing on the far side of the room unless there's reflections that are coming back to you that allow you to feel as if you're playing as part of a whole. So uh, there's a, a, a huge amount to consider. I mean, it really yeah. is it's, it's described as a dark art. So uh, something like the Barbican makes me think that the Barbican does that well, just the way that, they, that it's got a wooden curved panel right around the back. Yeah, I, I think it's like to play at, but... Uh, well, the, yes, it is. I mean, certainly getting those reflections from behind mm. are, are, are important. The, the Barbican, of course, is in... Uh, the City of London is in the process of, of designing a new concert hall, a mm. uh, new large um, concert hall for London. Arguably, London does not have a world-class uh, modern concert hall in the way that many other cities have. So this this uh, new uh, concert hall will probably elevate that. The Barbican's considered to have a, like, a reasonable acoustic. Mm. I think one of the best acoustics in uh, concert halls in the UK is probably Symphony Hall in, in, in Birmingham, which is, is really very fine. Uh, Sage Gitch Head, which is another one that we had, had worked on, Hall 1 there, oh, has yeah. got a, a fabulous, uh, f- fantastic acoustic as well. But the other, some of the other things with acoustics, those more prosaic elements like building services noise are really, really important. Somewhere like the Victoria Palace, where Hamilton is playing, mm. uh, if there's a lot of noise from mechanical ventilation, it doesn't really matter that much because everything's amplified, it's coming in quite loud, it's not really a big deal. Mm. If I'm in a concert hall, you know, I don't really want anything else to interfere with uh, my ability to, to hear. So those are designed with much more, more stringent standards, basically, and various different scales in between. It's a fascinating business. And the other, I think, really relevant thing in terms of the ability of a venue to use different spaces at, at the same time is yeah, the segregation yeah. of noise between spaces. So, yeah. um, you know, having a, a, a foyer that backs on to a theatre and you hear the sort of sound of clinking glasses at the after the interval being collected that affects your experience as a member of the audience so eliminating things like that or allowing uh, the studio space to be used at the same time as the main auditorium you know that's important to somebody's mm. revenue stream and the kind of the, the opportunities they have as an operator as uh, spacecraft about workplace is there anything you've learned over the years that designers can take away for their workplace designs i think the probably the key one for me is the fact that spaces aren't... Uh, you might design a space for one use. You might think that's the use that that space is going to mm. have. 
but not you can't prescribe that. Now, that's definitely how we work in theatre because an architect might ask me, what's this particular thing for? You know, Why do we need this balcony front lighting rail? I said, well, I don't know because I don't know what the show is going to be. Yeah. So I don't know how people are going to use this space. The one thing I can be quite sure is that somebody's going to come into a theatre with an idea that none of us have thought of so far. And I think, you know, applying that same sense to workplace design we've seen a lot of changes in how that's changed over the last sort of 15 or 20 years uh, I mean the whole notion of co-working now I was in New York recently and, and practically every other building was a we work yeah, uh, yeah. now and it's kind of it's amazing and of course that's rather generic form of that but being able to be flexible in terms of how a space might be used or how somebody might come in and use that space. I mean, this goes, a lot of this goes into the dark areas of spatial theory that mm. you know, Henri Lefebvre talked about the production of space. We walk into a space and that space really only exists because we're inhabiting it and we're producing the space as a result of that. And I think that's very true in the workplace. But certainly, you've been to our offices, which yeah. are no great advertisement for the a terrific workplace but the thing that makes it good for us are the people within it you know yeah, and yeah. You know, the way we are kind it's of a lovely bustling hub in there once again yeah or it can be it can be practically empty some oh, days yeah. because i mean this is this is the thing and that's probably the case for yeah. you know for for folk except in you know there are obviously workplaces where it's going to be populated pretty much the same every day by the same people yeah. uh, i suppose that's probably one of the most challenging things but but yeah just let's let's just think um about the possibilities. Anything goes, it's all possible. I guess it's going back to that agile theory, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I guess it is, actually, and also that, um, you know, the notion of people bolt on fancy things uh, as a, the sort of solution to yeah. the creative working yeah. space, but actually that's not necessarily what it's about at all, is it? It's about the people who are, you know, responding to how the people work within that and how they engage with each other. So, yeah. John, that was fascinating. Thank you very much for your time. Really good to speak to you again. Thanks, Dan. You too. Cheers. You've been listening to the Spacecraft Podcast, presented by Dan Mosscrop, brought to you by them.co.uk, who provides specialist graphic design support for commercial architects, developers, and interior designers. We'll be back with another episode soon, so please subscribe and keep listening.